The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome Brady Russell. Mr. Russell began working for Clean Water Action in the late summer of 2008. I became acquainted with him because of a project that I'm working on with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. We're doing a film festival in Philadelphia in a few months, and our focus is going to be on protecting our water and specifically fracking, and so that's how we met. I think it's interesting in Mr. Russell's bio, he says that he became interested in the environment while watching TV specials about Earth Day in 1990 back home in Pittsburgh, Kansas. So uh, welcome, Mr. Russell. It is an honor to have you, and I appreciate all the work you've done to protect our water. Thanks a lot. I remember when I was in school, I majored in nutrition and dietetics, and I remember the class very clearly where I first learned that water was our most important nutrient. And prior to that, I hadn't really thought about water as a nutrient. But when you think about the things that you can give up, water and air, right, they rise right to the top. And I'm really curious to know in your experience in working with Clean Water Action, What percolates to the top for you in terms of what are the most problematic issues facing our water supply today? Sure. Well, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, Water is our most important nutrient. But one of the most mind-blowing things anyone ever said to me about water and kind of what I think is is really the the real rubber-hitting-the-road issue on water right now that isn't as sexy as some of the other ones folks are talking about, but it's really important. It sort of flips that idea in another way. From the perspective of our rivers and streams in America, by volume, the largest single pollutant that is really damaging rivers and streams around our country, and and probably around the world too, is ironically water. And that sounds like a crazy thing to say, how can water be bad for a river and stream? But the reason is because of the way we build and the way we're developing our communities we're sending so much more water into rivers and streams than they evolved to deal with, and it's going in there so much faster that it isn't just the pollutants um, that the water carries from, you know, all the dirt and gasoline and oil that we and trash that we leave on the ground that um, all that water carries with it. But the water itself is damaging, too, because it, it, it's more than rivers and streams can handle and so it ends up tearing up the banks, and tearing up the banks isn't just, you know, it isn't just unsightly, but that's actually destroying real habitat for the aquatic life that we like to have in rivers and streams and for the plant life um, that's so critical for keeping, for keeping the streams healthy. So it, the fact that we send so, we, we just, our way of dealing with rain is to just throw it in the nearest river as quickly as we can. Um, is actually really damaging for water. And I think it's that's the critical water issue for all of us because while it's easy for a lot of us to point to big polluters like natural gas drillers or, um, you know, cement kilns or um, big chemical plants that, you know, dump nasty stuff in the water and it's all easy for us to get 
why that's a problem and to and to want to go at those guys. You know, cement and concrete and driveways and sidewalks and roads, that's that's all of our responsibility. Like, we all have a little bit of complicitness in that. And to really make a difference on it and to stop sending all that pollution to our rivers and streams, we need to, we need to start living our lives a little bit differently. Not dramatically differently, but a little bit differently. And building a bit differently in, in ways that I think in the end we'll all like a lot better um, if we just, you know, sort of adjust our thinking a little bit. But it does impose some cost on all of us, and, and, it, and it's, it's that last big pollution issue that we can't point to somebody else and say, they're doing that, they need to stop doing it. Like, we're, we're really the ones doing it. You know, all of us are. What does Clean Water Action do in terms of education? Do you go into classrooms and teach children that? I mean, at what point do we need to have the intervention? How far up the river, if you don't mind me using uh, that expression, do we need to go to really get people to start thinking about things like runoff. Yeah. I mean, well, you're, you're sort of talking about two different things there. I mean, in terms of who clean water action is and then, you know, kind of what needs to happen there, those are sort of two separate things. No one ever likes when I say this, and I'm probably a little bit more frank about it than most clean water action people are. But, you know, clean water action really works to be an organizing organization. So it's mobilizing people for change. Um, so, honestly, our staff spend next to zero time working with children just because they're not voters and they're not really a part of the decision makers in the world now. And there's a lot of other organizations who do that kind of stuff, and it's great that they do it. You know, I think it's really important that organizations focus. And so while there's a million things out there that are important, folks should try to be good at what they're good at. So as, a, as an organization that's focused on organizing, we don't do much in that. But, yeah, I, I think, um, I think it, it is often kids who are the most receptive to to ideas and sort of have the sensitivity to understanding and appreciating the planet. And so it is really important to inculcate those things. At the same time, I, I'm always a little, I don't, I don't ever like too much emphasis to be put on, on kids on the flip side because, I, I, and you know, in 12 years that I've been an organizer and I, I haven't just done environmental stuff, I've done all kinds of them, I've kind of gotten to the point where when I see folks talking about how it's just so important to educate the next generation, I sort of see that I've come to kind of see that as a way of um, – of dropping the responsibility that we have right now for dealing with what's really going on. And, you know, kids can't vote. They don't have much power. Um, adults do have power. Adults can change the way they think about things, and I really think they should. Um, so, I, you know, I do think it's pretty important that, uh, that we all take responsibility for what's going on right now and try to fix it. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think about how I could fold these lessons about what's important to protect our water into adult conversations and then help adults see what kind of changes they can make. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've had conversations about what is the best tack? Do I call my representative and hope that many more people will join me and that will make a change? And you had mentioned, no, it's better to go right to, say, the polluter or right to the people who are maybe making decisions about roads. Yeah, I mean that is definitely an and you know, I'm I'm I am leaving the organizing life, but this is a uh, a drum that I've been beating in my final days. I do actually really think that um particularly environmental organizations but but really everyone out there who is pushing for one kind of change for or another, I do think more and more in today's world and this used to be something that social change advocates did a lot more of and I don't know why and I don't know when it happened. You hear plenty of stories of this kind of thing happening once upon a time, but I do think more and more in today's world, 
more organizations and organizers should be taking the fight straight to the people who are causing the problem and worrying less about trying to get change out of politicians. In my observation, politicians tend to follow the zeitgeist, and so if good work is done and and some private actors started to perform in a more publicly spirited way, um, I think the laws will follow. I may or may not be right about that. I don't know. But in, in 13 years of doing this, I am very confident that in more, more often than not, and in a lot of situations where folks don't want to admit it, time spent pushing politicians is, in fact, wasted time. And I, I think that really strongly. And I, I came to this realization um, a couple of years ago, and I, I like to talk about it as what I call the Santorum problem, because the thing that folks always say that the threat against politicians is, well, if we don't like what politicians are doing, we should we can get organized and we can get fired up, and we can we can vote them out of office. And if we do a good enough job and they really start to get scared, then they'll start doing things differently and and they'll act in a way that's more respectful of the environment. And that's a little bit true sometimes, but but it, it I mean a incumbents almost never get voted out and hard I don't know of any organization I've never come across an organization that's powerful enough to consistently be able to say we can kick you out of office if we want to so it's not much of a threat a but b if you if you watch politicians who start to be threatened and who look like they might get kicked out of office I really I challenge anyone to show me an instance where that politician changed their behavior dramatically, which leads me to what I call the Santorum problem. So here in Pennsylvania, you know, we had Rick Santorum, who, for a variety of reasons, became a very well-known senator across the country and recent candidate for president. And Rick Santorum was very conservative, and, and he he rose to a high level of power in the in the country and in the Senate. And Rick Santorum really liked being a senator, and he didn't want to lose his job. He really loved being in the Senate, and, and he was a very effective senator. I mean, I disagree with him about everything, but he got his agenda done. He was good at doing what he wanted to do. And Rick Santorum eventually lost his seat, not for the reason that most politicians lose it, in, in that there was some kind of scandal, but he lost it because he people just eventually realized that his values were not Pennsylvania's values, and they kicked him out, and they voted Senator Casey in. And I always say Senator Casey didn't win that election. Rick Santorum lost it. Um, you know, anybody could have run that year, and, and they probably would have beaten Rick Santorum. And so Rick Santorum is rare because he lost his seat on his merit. But Rick Santorum didn't change even the slightest bit, even up to his final days in office. He didn't try to mollify anyone, particularly on issues of pollution. And the reason I believe that is, and the reason why I think this whole idea of let's just kick the bums out and, and we can organize and, and that's how we'll make change happen, the reason why I don't think that's accurate is because especially if pollution is your issue and the environment is your issue, if someone is bad enough on those issues that they are going to lose a seat over it. If that's if that's what's going to get them kicked out, if people are mad enough that they're supporting polluters and they're tired of that, then that politician is there because he or she knows that they have the backing of that industry, and if they get kicked out of office for it, they're going to be taken care of. You know, Rick Santorum, I think, like, quadrupled, maybe even, like, quintupled his salary when he left the United States Senate. He didn't want to leave, but... It must have been, you know, some comfort to him to know that he was going to make vastly more money 
um, as a consultant for Consul Energy, a big coal company, when he left. And, and you can guarantee he, he did know that. He knew he had that fallback because he'd carry water for them in the Senate for years. And the worst-case scenario for him was, well, if I lose my job doing the work that this company basically hired me to do um, and supported me to do, you know, I'll get a nice pay increase. And they don't get to have the Senate job that I did like having, but but I'll get a nice payday and, I'll, and it, you know, this is America. I'll have a chance to make a comeback and run for president a few years later. So I just don't think that environmental groups can compete with that. I don't think that we can promise anyone um, a massive salary increase if they lose their job for supporting our issues. And so what I think the effect is, is that politicians become really kind of an airbag that take the brunt of the advocacy community's anger about pollution and environmental harm, when really that anger is better directed at the people who are doing the harm and who are doing the pollution, and just take the fight fight straight to them um, so that they have to deal with that poor PR and that disruption in their activities and, um, and you know, let the politicians catch up when the, when the culture catch up, catches up. Do you have any examples where that has worked? Um, well, it certainly worked in other fields. So, um, you know, I think it is kind of working here in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's, it's sort of a – it's complicated. You know, natural gas drillers in Pennsylvania put a lot of PR effort into um, – into bragging about how careful they're being about natural gas drilling here. Now, they're not being that careful, but I can't help but think that all of the PR they're putting out there does reflect some fear of this environmental message. And, you know, one of the points I've always made on this is, you know, until they came to Pennsylvania and they faced the outrage of the environmentalists here, Chesapeake Energy um, wasn't saying that they were going to use only closed-loop fracking systems. So, um, it's a little technical, but if, if folks know anything about fracking, if they've you know watched any videos or if they've seen Gaslands or whatever, you've probably seen images of a fracking site. And most fracking sites, the kind of the iconic thing about a, a fracking site besides the, the drilling rig, the other iconic image of a fracking site are the gigantic pools of really nasty polluted water that you see, you know, swimming pool-sized pits on every fracking site that are filled with water. And most fracking sites have those. And they're obviously a big pollution risk, you know, a big storm event. They can overflow or the, um, or the lining of the pools can rip and water can seep down or, or, you know, ducks can land on them and die instantly because the stuff's so polluted. There's a lot of ways in which open, open pits of really nasty water are a bad idea. Well, they don't have to do it that way. Um, there is technology that allows companies to do it entirely with a closed-loop system, where the water is never exposed to the air. Now, that's not to say that those systems are perfect and never have spills. They, they do, of course, have spills, but they're much safer. Um, they're a much better way to do fracking than, you know, open pit systems. But they cost more money. They take more time. So, obviously, companies don't really want to do it. Well, when Chesapeake Energy, the, you know, the biggest fracker in the country, um, came here, I believe because the environmental community was so organized, they began saying that they were only going to do closed-loop systems. And and you can look on Chesapeake Energy's website and check their annual reports, and you'll see over and over again they say, you know, we only do closed-loop systems. It's one of the things that they really hang their hats on. And there's no law in Pennsylvania that says you have to use closed-loop systems. I wish there were. There should be. Um, but there's not. But that's what they say. And I think that is the um, that is the pressure of the environmental community that's made that happen, um, and and that's without us even trying to take the fight straight to them. Now I said there's a caveat on that, and there is. Um, when we started doing some work on how effective Pennsylvania's um, uh, 
enforcement of the existing fracking rules are um, in Pennsylvania, we found that Chesapeake Energy has a bunch of frack pit violations around the state, um, meaning that even though they say they're only doing closed-loop systems, they actually do have at least some open frack pits out there because they've had violations on them. So, you know, um, you, you can't really trust something that a fracking company says. On the flip side, um, the question, I, I do think that they're probably doing more closed-loop systems here than they would have otherwise have been if the environmental community wasn't, you know, organized as well as it is. And I just wonder what would happen if we really got serious about really focusing on the big players here in Pennsylvania, so that's, you know, Chief, Chesapeake, and Range, and uh, and really bringing the pressure straight at them, you know, I mean, protests outside their offices, protests outside their drilling sites, um, maybe chasing around some of the companies in the state that are providing financial services to them, for example, or maybe some of the trucking companies who are helping them move their junk around the state, you know, those sorts of things. Um, I wonder what would happen and how much better... Um, and how much more careful frackers might be if they if they had um, if they had environmentalists chasing them around rather than chasing the politicians around. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Brady Russell. He has been a professional organizer for Clean Water Action based in Philadelphia. So, Mr. Russell, I, I want to ask you about some of the propaganda messages that come out about practices that affect our water system. And mm-hmm. we've been talking about fracking specifically because fracking is such a big issue in Pennsylvania and, well, many states really within the United States, but mm-hmm. specifically in Pennsylvania. So some of the conflicting messages that really have us in a quandary are things like, well, you know, you can either have the environment or you can have jobs. You can't mm-hmm. have both. And the cost issues come up, right? So we want we want clean energy. We want low-cost energy. And many of these statements are blatant lies. And yet, until someone's water is contaminated, it doesn't seem like we think about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a ton there's a ton to unpack there. But whenever folks start to talk about, um, you know, how desperately. America needs um, needs uh, more sources of clean energy. You know, the first thing I always like to point out is the amount of energy that we're just letting float out of our windows from you know building crappy buildings that um, that don't do a very good job of holding on to the energy that we use in them. And and the next thing I like to point out, and folks are always kind of oh well that can't really be that significant. How significant is that really? Next thing I like to point out is, and a lot of people don't know about this, and it's unfortunate, but it's it's what a lot of people refer to as the California miracle. So, um, you know, I know folks like to believe that California exists in a separate reality from the rest of us, and nothing that California does is really possible anywhere else in the world because they function under a different set of laws of physics than we do. But they don't actually. It's it's really a part of this universe and this world. And in California, the per person electricity usage in that state, in that seventh largest economy in the entire world, very tech job heavy state um, that has some of the most, you know, well-known brands in the country, in the world operating out of it, with some very big operations happening there, per person electricity usage in California has been flat since the 1960s. So... Everywhere else in the entire country, per-person electricity usage has been going up dramatically since the 1960s. Everybody's using way more electricity um, on a per capita basis. But in California, which isn't, doesn't just have the Internet revolution, it's where it started, um, you know, has gigantic Google server, server farms in it, 
um, you know, spends an enormous amount of, of electricity on just moving water around the state because they have so many people living in places where people shouldn't live. Um, despite all of that, California uses the same amount of electricity per person as it did in the 1960s. And why is that? Because California got serious 50 years ago about writing laws and policies that said that people in the state couldn't build things in a way that wasted energy. So, you know, if, if energy is such a crisis and we all need more energy and cheaper energy, why don't we get serious as a country about not wasting so much of it and using it more efficiently so that we we end up every you know every kilowatt kilowatt hour of energy that we have here that we generate goes vastly further why don't we do that first before finding ways to develop gigantic new fields of really polluting sources of energy it's so interesting that you say that because we can talk about food in the same vein you know, there's all this pressure to produce more food, more food, and yet nobody's really taking a solid, hard look at how much we waste. Yeah, so much gets wasted, right? Yeah, Exactly. It's the same thing. And yet, with regard to the energy use, you know, the, the point, again, goes back to cost. So somebody will say, well, yeah, we can write these con- cons- conservation-minded policies, but they're going to be, it's almost like they see the cost of the policy or the cost of the initial intervention, but they don't look far enough down the road to see the benefit. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. If, if, um, if smart policy is too expensive for a society, why is California doing so well? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's had, some, it's had some rough years in the last decade, that's for sure. Um, um, there's no question about that. But on balance, you know, it's, it's one of the states with the highest standards of living of anywhere else in the entire country. People love being there. You know, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool East Coaster. I'm not moving. I'm, I know I sound like I'm doing an ad for California right now, but I'm not moving there anytime soon. But I, I will say people live pretty well there, and they don't seem to have any idea. I mean, I don't think a lot of Californians even know what a good job they're doing on energy because it, that, and that's the thing. They've, they have built more responsible policy into the fabric of the way the state is built and it works out in such a way that people aren't even aware of it, but they're they're doing a, a much better job of handling energy than the rest of us are just because they decided to get serious about it. You know, on this whole cost side, I, I'm it's, the folks who always talk about um, who talk about cost, I, I find are often the folks who um, who will enjoy whatever resource it is the shortest amount of time. So I think the, a great example of that is our developers. So. You know, I started off um, this conversation talking about stormwater, and, and one of the areas in which um, we could be doing a lot less stormwater pollution is if we if we built new development, you know, um, new suburbs or redevelop old suburbs or whatever. If we if we built them in such a way that more more water was managed on site, and you know, you'll always hear the develop the development community they don't like doing that. They don't like to do things different ways, and sometimes it costs more money. Actually, a lot of times it doesn't actually cost more money. A lot of times it costs less. But leaving that aside. They don't like to change their way of doing things or they're worried about cost. Or sometimes these smart development practices don't allow them to, de- to develop quite as much land as, as they would like. Like they have to leave some more land alone and they don't like that. And so they complain about it. But the point that I always like to make is as a society, we shouldn't worry about what the home builder wants. What we should really be much more interested in is what does the home owner want and need. And you find that when you're smarter about development practices, when you're smarter about managing stormwater, when you're smarter about protecting natural resources, 
it may not be so hot for the developer, but you know what? They're just building this thing and selling it off and moving on to the next project. But for the person who's going to live there for the next 40 years, it actually does a protecting natural resources actually does a great job of preserving value for for them and making those spaces that they're going to be in for a really long time much more enjoyable and they get a lot more out of those spaces um, when they're built with that kind of social consciousness and environmental consciousness in, in mind. Those those green attributes um, make a real difference in people's lives and they see it both in the value of their home and in their experience living there. So I think when folks hear that whole cost question, they have to ask themselves, who really benefits? Is it, is it the person with the short-term gain that benefits or, or the person who's really going to use a resource over time? Mm-hmm. So y- we just have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to cover highlights of your time with Clean Water Action and to leave us with some take-home messages about what each of us can maybe do to protect our most important, one of our most important natural resources. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that um, anyone can do is um, take on some aspect of environmental issues that you really care about and actually get at least a little bit um, involved in a real way in in the decision-making process on it. You know, I'm I'm all for folks doing good things at home, you know, recycling, putting a rainbow on your house, all that stuff. But the truth is, um, if we're really going to deal with um, the struggle this country has environmentally, it needs to be addressed systemically. So folks need to, you know, once or twice a year, go with some organization, whether it's Clean Water Action or another one, and talk to some politicians about issues, you know, put some, put some tough questions to them, um, push them on those issues, you know, go to a rally or an event that's happening around some polluter in your area, and push for people and big institutions around you um, to do a better job of per- protecting the environment and show that it's something you really care about. Because we need to, you know, personal choice is important, but but really the change, like what I pointed out in California, the big change, the change you really need is is on that larger scale that's nothing that you or I as individuals can make happen on our own, but something that we as a society need to get serious about. So I would say that's what folks really need to do. Um, in terms of my time at Clean Water, you know, it's it's been – um, really rewarding to me. I think the biggest highlight for me at Clean Water Action um, happened almost immediately after I got here because I sort of came in as the natural gas drilling fight was perking up, and I was the first or- – I don't know that I did a great job with it, but um, I was the first organizer to head up to this town called Demick, which has made uh, national news decently often for so many things with, with uh, fracking going wrong up there, and I was the first guy to go up there and just start poking around and talking to people. And um, – so I saw I saw fracking firsthand earlier than a lot of other organizers did, and it stayed with me. Um, and so I think that's probably the highlight of my four years here. Of course, I've been in, involved in all kinds of things, um, but that was probably the big one. Well, you've been involved in many wonderful things, including helping low-income people get heating, raising the minimum wage, all the things that come together that really do relate to food and water and Mm -hmm. agriculture and public health. So I know you're moving on to focus on writing and being an artist, but I personally want to thank you for your work to protect the environment, and I hope that you always devote a little bit of your time to doing that. 
Um, in closing, I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Mr. Brady Russell. He began working for Clean Water Action in the late summer of 2008. He's learned a lot about organizing and given us some tips on how we can better organize ourselves. Um, I also want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank Mr. Brady Russell for being my guest and for all your work for protecting the environment with Clean Water Action. Thanks a lot. All right. And if you want some more information about clean water and all of the work that Clean Water Action has done, please go to the website, which is www.cleanwateraction.org. Thank you again, Mr. Russell. Thanks.